0: Sims. I am a licensed clinical social worker, um, working with the Public Mental Health Partnership. And me and my colleague Jean are here today to talk about persisted and committed engagement, practical strategies for difficult to reach clients. So our first learning objective, as you can see, so we have many more learning objectives than are listed here. but. The three that we highlighted are distinguish. We hope that by the end of the training today, you'll be able to distinguish four persistent engagement strategies that can be used to strengthen rapport with difficult to engage clients. Um, Describe three informal engagement methods that can be used during outreach to build therapeutic alliance. I know you all use these all the time, so we're hoping to hear from you to share your ideas and illustrate how, when, and why informal engagement strategies are essential in development of client's treatment plan within at least one current client example. So uh, that's what we'll look forward to here. So this is um, a visual from a training we did recently on Uh, systems-oriented care. Um, But I bring that up because this was kind of the introduction to systems-oriented care. And this is a visual of the socio-ecological model, which if um, you've been in like in grad school for social work, we talk about it a lot. And perhaps you've come across in other um, academic environments, but it can be really helpful to think about the different systems that impact our clients and where we can uh, engage with clients and their bigger um, connections uh, in enhanced ways to make their uh, service delivery better and uh, have better quality. So, the. Um, the socio-ecological model was developed by psychologist Yuri Bronfenbrenner in the 1970s, and the original purpose was to describe the dynamic interrelations among various personal and environmental factors that impact child development. It's now used beyond that as a model for understanding the range of factors that affect mental health and well-being, as well as physical health. So what we understand by looking at this model is that each individual is positioned. So each of us, each of our clients, our family members, every person is positioned within um, a range of factors, right? So some of you may have learned the socioecological model as Microsystems, mesosystems, exosystems, macrosystems. That's the four level model. Um, I hadn't heard of exosystems, so that one's new to me. Um, There are different ways to express the same concept, but here we kind of have going from the individual to their interpersonal reaction. So it's them plus their family and loved ones pretty much anyone they're directly interacting with and then you go beyond to organizational what what community resources um or what uh resources within your organization um are working with this client and then beyond that it's the community partnerships. so um the community resources and services that are available to your client. That's gonna be there in that gray bubble. And the law and policy, um, when we're doing this direct service practice, we often don't have a lot of time and energy for the law and policy work. But um, if you're someone who is active in that, then you'll know that the work that we do really comes from our values and might inform how we feel about policies um, and so some people might might uh, take their work beyond the community level to law and policy to try to affect change in a, in a grander scale. So in the simplest terms, one thing affects another and an intervention on any of these levels will have impacts on the other levels, right? So if the law changes, that might change which community Agencies are funded or receive additional funding. Um, you know, your organization, the FSP transformation. If you're an FSP provider, you might be going from um, a different model of, like, a shared caseload instead of an individual caseload. That affects your clients, right? Um, if if your client is in a fight with their best friend, who's their their main social support, that affects them too. So we're just trying to get at all these different things affect our clients in different ways. And we don't work with people in a vacuum, but within all these different systems that are dynamic and changing and also stuck in ways that undermine what we're doing with our clients, we run into system barriers, right? So we wanted to start our training with this model to highlight that engagement can happen on multiple levels within this hierarchy of systems that surrounds each of our clients. And when our clients engage with us, they get to practice skills that can impact their other interpersonal experiences. So we're kind of meeting the individual where they are practicing interpersonal skills And then the quality of services you're providing to your client occurs within the organizational realm, right? You're kind of representing your organization when you're working with your client, And if your organization is fully staffed and able to have someone on call 24 hours, you know, that's going to be very different than um, if your agency is understaffed, right? Um, So that might affect... Uh, the quality of the service your clients uh, have access to. And then you use your engagement skills to assist your clients in connecting to other community organizations, services and resources, right? Linkage is a huge thing. We try to get our clients connected um, and we have to use engagement strategies to do that, both with our clients and their other providers. So, if you're more interested in thinking in a systems oriented way, um, we encourage you to check out this other training, this uh, systems oriented uh, training, systems oriented care training collaborative. It'll be offered again over Zoom or in person, depending on what's happening next year. But in the meantime, you can find it on our website. And with that, I'll switch it over. Thanks, Chelsea. So from there, I know
1: we're going to take a closer lens because we work within all these systems, but on a day-to-day basis, when we're thinking of engagement, we're often thinking of Um, handoffs because when you're getting a new client that you have to outreach and engage with, sometimes it is from another FSP team within your same spa or coming in from a different spa or it's from home to FSP. So there's lots of different ways that we have what I think we're all familiar with, those nice warm handoffs. But I think what we often forget to emphasize within these handoffs is the amount of collaboration. And so there's this great research terminology for a collaborative handoff. And I think that warm handoffs themselves can be collaborative, but I think this research is also important to highlight because it just sets some ground rules of what this really looks like. And I think there can be some takeaways that you can use with your team as well. I know as a provider myself, I've done the classic provider to provider handoff and not involve the client as much, but the key for a collaborative handoff is that you, the other provider and the client are all sitting down together. That is the fundamental basic. And if you can't meet all together because of COVID, the goal is that you can do that on Microsoft Teams, you can do that on Zoom, or a three-way phone call, just some sort of mutual meet and get together. And what that does is it begins the rapport building process for the client and the new team. It also helps the client feel heard and understood much sooner. And I think at baseline two. When we're having this amount of communication between providers and with the client, we can get more detailed information that we wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. I think we forget to check in sometimes of those key contacts that may not be updated in the system of the neurologist's phone number. They have a new one, but the old one's in the system. Who has the new one's number? Like we don't often think to double check these things hopefully we're always checking for like medication refills if someone's on you know medications if it's a three-day refill because they had a recent suicide attempt that's very important to know versus a two-week refill and who their pharmacist is and you know all those key contacts. So I think it's just really important to emphasize a collaborative handoff whenever possible. And research has shown, as I'm sure your own work has shown, that it's really beneficial for those that we have difficulty engaging with, for those complex cases. It helps facilitate greater participation. So what if a collaborative handoff is not possible? I made this fun infographic (laughs) of warm to cold handoff Um, because I think each of us have experienced some not great handoffs in our time (laughs) where we have tried to get information and I don't know what's happening with the other provider, but they're very busy and they're not returning our calls. And it's not going well. So I think what we're going to go on to next um, is what engagement means to you. And this can be in the lens of that beginning outreach and engagement phase. This can mean for ongoing engagement and maintaining rapport. These are all things we're going to dive into further. our next little portion is about formal versus informal engagement. And it's blank because I was going to try to have us write in it, but I'm nervous to do that. So we might just talk it out since talking is going so well. <laughs> um, but I think for some examples of just to reference a formal engagement, right, is linking to a medical provider that's formally engaging with someone. Informal engagement. Um, could be a reward system sort of thing. But I like to view it as celebrating the small wins. If someone's had two weeks of sobriety and you guys are going to get celebratory burritos and, you know, then finish some paperwork, like that's a more informal tactic that can be extremely useful as well. I'll go ahead and show this giant list and then we'll probably have more discussion from it. (laughs) Um, so definitely formal when we're thinking of it, that's that treatment plan, the decision making within our teams, medication management, but also just openness to medication management. I think we often hear no as a firm. No, and I think there's opportunity when we see that not being on medication impacts the goals that they want to accomplish. I had lots of really young kind psychotic men that were like I want a house I want a girlfriend and I was like okay but when you start hearing those voices you want to burn things down so we gotta we gotta align those goals and it seems like when you stay on meds like that doesn't happen as much so it's really just that openness and open-ended questions of seeing how the medication can be tied to their goals and help them to achieve their goals if the not being on the medication is limiting their ability to achieve the goals they really want to for themselves. Um, and then utilization of social support. Everybody needs supports, especially outside of just your team. So it's really key. I know now more than ever to get connected online, to get connected to... Whatever you can, I wish libraries were open. I know they have provided so much for our clients in the past, but however we can link them so that they don't feel so alone, that they have other people outside of you that they can reach out to is very, very important. Um, Informal strategies, accepting clients as they are, right? I think some people have talked about this in that chat. So far, um, me, literally meeting them where they're at, I think someone wrote. Um, empowerment. Uh, I definitely think sometimes I've had moments where I'm like, well, if I do this phone call for them, it will go much faster. <laughs> but I've also been like, I'm going to always have to make this phone call for them if I don't teach them. And so with like older clients, it's definitely like, let's set up your phone together then let's do an IT session together. Then let's call and make the appointment together. Then let's call transportation together. Then let me coach you through it for next time, right? Like it's a lot of steps, but it's worth it because we want them to not be dependent on this system that is so difficult to navigate consistently for the rest of their lives. We want them to feel empowered to be independent when when they can, when they're able to. And that's a lot more of the time than we think about. Um, And then clear communication. I think we talked about this already in the chat, right? And reward system, I mentioned celebrating the small wins. I think those are great for sobriety, hospitalizations, not being in the hospital. That's huge for people that that can honestly be a coping skill of like, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'll be in the ER. It's like, okay, let's build some other coping skills, right? Like we want to celebrate those wins with them, those victories, because they do matter. And I often find that adding food to it makes the memory stick more when there are delicious (laughs) things to commemorate the moment. Um, So from this
0: list, you can let it stew and sit. Jean, I was just thinking about um, the reward system or kind of like using, um, like if you have funds in your job to buy little things for your clients, food, beverages, Like a game, you know, like a crossword or word search, things like that have been so helpful for me. I did my direct service, most of it in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, in the Tenderloin, which is kind of like the Skid Row up there. And it just really helped to be able to offer something tangible in the moment, especially when I was early engagement with new clients. Um, So I think it can be used both as like, a way to honor some some achievement and then also a way at the very beginning to build that rapport yeah
1: definitely definitely i had a client that always wanted to play i think it's a board game called othello i'm not sure if it's <laughs> yeah and i had to learn othello <laughs> i wasn't good but that wasn't the point it was very helpful to building engagement um, and rapport. So thank you, Chelsea. This says highlighting um, and following through in tasks and highlighting strengths. Some clients don't know what their strengths are. Yes. Um, I think a really good way to even get them open to their strengths too and noticing them more is definitely bringing them up but also acceptance and commitment therapy has a great like values list and the values are all positive and about like they pick out what values are important to them like loyal or you know um, loves animals can be a value like there's a big list that you can just search online and that's a great way to you know ground them in what's important to you and also these are natural strengths, all these values, there's usually a strength attached to them. So that's a great exercise to do with clients, because that's definitely part of the empowerment process is they have to believe in themselves, right? It's not enough that we believe in them. They also have to begin that process too. Persistent engagement strategies. Uh, I think we've already started talking about a lot of these that flexibility and altering team expectations, that engagement may look a little differently than we previously had hoped for or imagined. Um, But also highlighting client rights, right? They may make choices that we don't necessarily agree with, but it's important to remember that it's their choice, right? And I think we can often think of, we had a harm reduction training where we have this uh, neglect or overprotect continuum of care, where we can go to one or the other of it's their choice, like, I, I'm done, I'm tired, or overprotective, like, no, I have to intervene, I know what's best for them. And we really have to be mindful of that and try to center ourselves in the middle of that, because there may be choices that are not safe that they're going to engage in. And it's important to acknowledge that they still have the choice to do those things. But, you know, I'm concerned about you, you know, I'm on your team still, but I'm worried about you. And how can I help support you if you're still going to do those things to make sure you're at least safe while you're doing them, right? Not just telling someone, you need to stop this behavior. You should do this. That's a closed conversation. That door is closed. We want to keep that door open, especially with safety, right? It's better if our clients tell us what they're doing and they feel that they can, because there's a lot of shame and stigma that we're working with, with mental health alone, then you add substance use, it's a whole nother layer. So if we can break that down, well, highlighting their rights, that's a double win. Um, Intensifying outreach. I think it just comes down to continuing to be consistent. I know we don't always have the resources to intensify outreach. I think it's really good for whatever team you're on. If you know you're not always going to be their core person, that you introduce them as well to other members of the team, right, in your intensification of outreach. Because if you bring them on and you're like, oh, Now you're meeting with Chelsea only. And they're going to be like, what? I bonded with you. So it's really important to have that open communication and to share the workload, right? You're a team and everyone should get to know your client. So in case there's an emergency and you're not there, they're going to know what to do or what's important to that client as well. And then Chelsea, I'm gonna tag you cause you had a great example for discovering new meanings of engagement.
0: Thanks, yeah. So um, when we were, Jean and I were talking about this, I was reflecting back on clients I had worked with and I had one client who was, oh gosh, just very dear to my heart um, to this day. Um, and he was struggling with uh, paranoid delusions which really changed our interactions. Um, we had a very good therapeutic alliance and then these started happening and, um, his delusions, some of them were about me as a provider. Um, and so, and he was also very sick. So I was trying to help him get, and my team didn't have a shared caseload. So I was the only one. Anyway, the thing I did is he loved the Grateful Dead. He was a a deadhead, I think is what they go by. He had been to, you know, dozens of shows in his life couldn't go anymore. But um, so I just put Grateful Dead on my phone playing on like Spotify in the waiting room while we were at his doctor's appointment. And he was able to get through it. And he was able to tolerate me being there, even though to him, I didn't feel like a safe person at that time, um, but it was really important that he got this uh, medical surveillance kind of thing done for his health. So anyway, the power of music, so important. Sh- there are studies shown it helps people with dementia. It helps so much with folks who have hear voices. So that's my example. Sorry, long-winded. No, not
1: long-winded. It's wonderful, wonderful. And I don't know if anyone wants to share, you, you know, creative ways that they in, um, engage with their clients currently or have in the past, because I think sharing what your experience has been is really helpful. I mean, I want to know, but also <laughs> I think it's helpful for providers in the field, you know, learning these new techniques that you have found useful as well.
0: I have one more I can share, <laughs> Jean. But then, well, if anyone else, please. But my other example that I had thought of was um, I played a phone game with another client who had a really, she had complex PTSD and had a really hard time waiting in a waiting room um, for something that made her nervous. So I played this game on my phone. It was an app heads up and we just played that game until the doctor came and it, it was it was awesome. It was just in my pocket, you know, so things like that didn't occur to me, um, until they, until they did. <laughs> Thanks, Chelsea.
1: You are already so knowledgeable, so I think you know what's important to clients during engagement. But just to highlight some, I think we talked already about unconditional positive support. Uh, the only other thing I'll mention here is that clients can tell if you're not on their side and not on their team. So once again, just, you know, if you're not feeling it, reschedule tag in another team member because one of the best things about working with this population, but also sometimes tough is they can smell BS from a mile away. (laughs) So it's really great to be yourself, be genuine, be positive, be consistent, Um, and acknowledging their expertise, right? When we're talking about building strengths, when clients come to me and like, what should I do now? I don't know what to do next. It's really asking, well, what do you think you should do next? You are the expert of your life. You have made it X many years. And that is extremely impressive with everything that you've been through. So I'm going to help you move forward. But I want to remind you of this and have you focus on that as we go through this next step together. And that really blends into client-directed treatment, right? I know we all have things we have to bill for, notes we have to do, but it's really important that we're continuing to offer choices, that the treatment we're providing, the goals are aligning with what the client's end goals are. And then literally meeting where they're at. I think we've talked about this already in outreach and engagement, but even after they're in housing, you know, they may be more comfortable talking to you in a place they feel safe in, and that might not be your office. Um, And just trying to see where you're going to get the most engagement out of. It might not be sitting down, right? It might be a walk. It might be a different form of engagement, a different place, Um, but it's still an opportunity to, to learn and grow with your client. And then I will hand it over to Chelsea for talking about some practical considerations when we're in the field for engagement.
0: Thanks, Jean. So anyone who has been in the field knows that there are practical considerations, right? For engagement. We need to think about the location. We need to think about the time of day, maybe time of month, just time in general, Um, what we're wearing, um, and if we're by our, ourselves or not, right? So um, when we're thinking about location and we'll get a little bit more into assessing the environment in a couple of slides, but um, you know, there are three things that we should consider, right? Safety, is your client safe in this place? Are you safe with your client in this place? What's going on around the area? Confidentiality, can you speak to your client without other people overhearing? Otherwise, that's breaking their confidentiality, right? Um, and, you know, pre planning your route. That might be if you're on foot, you might want to have a particular uh, route that you take that avoids certain areas. Um, maybe there's a big encampment and you want to kind of go around it, things like that, just to take into consideration. Um, Question for you all, so location. So you're trying to meet your client um, at a location. How do you how do you communicate with them if they don't have a phone? Like how will you figure out the location to meet at and how do you follow up? Awesome, so it's like a rotating appointment, like week, consistent appointment. Awesome, uh, meeting at a consistent time, you know, weekly. Um, definitely looking into the databases that show information. Um, and then time of day, I, well, actually, I don't think we had it on here. I also meant to have day of month on here because payday is a big thing, right? Um, when I was working in San Francisco, the first of the month was a day that I did not try to do much outreach because my clients were busy. They got paid. They were using their money for what they needed. Um, And sometimes what they wanted or needed did not align very well with engagement, right? So um, often I would wait until maybe the third or fourth or fifth of the month um, for clients, especially clients who are using substances. Um, And then to further that like time of day, if you're considering substance use, which I always do because many of my clients, it was just the majority had substance use along with their severe mental illness. Um, You know, if your client is using alcohol, what time of day do you think is best for someone who uses a lot of alcohol, who might be alcohol dependent? Morning. (laughs) Yes. Right. So alcohol, you got to get there in the morning. Um, when they are able to interact with you better right mm-hmm. um, be able to express themselves more clearly um, there also might be a safety concern in the morning right so uh, that's awesome and then what if someone's using math or speed another kind of upper late afternoon early afternoon yes afternoon right because some often when people are using speed they're not sleeping very much and when they do it's, um, can be late into the day, right? If they're up very late at night, getting to sleep early hours of the morning, if you go in the morning and wake them up, might not be the best time for engagement where you can get anything done together. Um, so that's great. Um, and then another thing to consider for time of day is your client's preference, right? We always wanna try to meet our clients where they're at and use the methods that work best for them. So we wanna take into account their preference. We wanna review the referral info, the info in the database. I forget what the acronym is, but um, you wanna review all the data that you have to help you determine that time. Um, And then for, for, it says dress code. I don't believe in a dress code because I think we all get to make decisions on what we wear if you wanna wear a dress out, outreaching, I have no problem with that if you feel comfortable. But um, what I want folks to think about is what is your own dress code, right? How do you feel in your body when um, you're wearing different clothing? And this might be more for folks who are on the feminine end of the range and the gender identity spectrum more because we think often more about what we're wearing and how that makes us feel safety wise. But for anybody, what what are, what are things, clothing options that have been helpful for you in uh, engagement? I know for me, I had a uniform, a t-shirt, jeans, running shoes, a backpack, and a layer. <laughs> and I was in San Francisco, so it was always cold. So I had to have 14 layers, but you know, it was pretty different from how I would dress in other situations. Yeah, so I think comfortable shoes especially, very good to think about layers you know, um, one thing I love about getting into this field is that I don't like to be super fancy all the time. And I think it's so much more, someone is much more approachable when they're dressed comfortably and casually. Um, And so I like to think about that when outreaching my clients too. I'm not gonna, you know, wear a diamond necklace. I mean, of course not, but you know what I mean? Um, So kind of you know, thinking about these things. And then of course, there's, uh, you can bring an outreach partner with you if that's possible, maybe someone on your team. Um, So another outreach worker, another case manager, um, maybe a nurse from your program, or you can also outreach with folks from another team. So in my previous work, I would outreach clients who were, like the client I mentioned before, who was having all those delusions, and all of this came up kind of suddenly. Um, I had a psychiatric nurse practitioner outreach him with me, and he was able to trust that nurse at the time more than me, and so it helped to be able to do that. Um, So that's another thing to consider. Um, and of course, if you are outreaching a client with another provider, you must have a release of information. I'm sure you all are very familiar with HIPAA, um, but just want to put that out there because that's what we got to do. All right. So this slide, I was going to ask you guys, um, but we are we want to kind of pick up the pace for the last 15 minutes of our training. Um, So just consider what to bring with you that can enhance engagement, especially if you're earlier in your um, career um, or in your position now. Um, This was one of the most helpful things for me at the beginning of doing outreach work was like, what do I bring with me? What can help at the time? Um, For me, this is what came to mind. Business cards and blank releases of information. Give out business cards to everybody. Um, so that you can collaborate with the other providers you're helping connect your clients to releases of information so that you have uh, authority to contact them and they can talk to you right so you can get it all done in person it's more efficient ppe of course is covid you all are aware of all the ppe we want to bring it with us maybe a clipboard pens and paper, snack beverages for clients, activities I alluded to before. You could do them on your phone. You can get those really cheap word search, coloring books, magazines, whatever at the drugstore. Uh, Maybe even have a set of headphones that clients can use and you can plug it into your phone. Um, A fan, you know, it's freaking hot right now. Um, Maybe a fan like a battery operated, I always have a foldable fan on me. Um, And Narcan, Narcan is great to have. If you are able to get it, um, definitely helpful. Okay, so this comes from um, a training done by Anthony Ruffin who I believe is an FSP supervisor. He's home, he's home. Home He's a home supervisor. My apologies, I'm still, I joined in February, so I'm still getting familiar with everything. He did an amazing presentation in our, I believe 2019 um, live FSP conference. Yes, okay. So he talked about assessing the environment and kind of going beyond what I would have initially thought of. So why are they living here in this spot, in this area? What's important to your client? What's important to them in their surroundings? Are they near any resources that they depend on? Um, sometimes a resource might be the corner store. That's the corner store where they don't have to have their ID to get their check cash. You know, there's just all these different resources that um, your clients might be utilizing that are is good to know. Why are they using that? What's important about it? What community are they currently a part of? Do they have? Um, a religious community, cultural community, um, drug use community, street community, you know, we wanna be familiar. Um, How do they feel about their safety in their location? There's our own feelings about their safety and then there's their feelings, right? And it's okay if those things are maybe different, but we have to honor what our clients feel about their experience. how do they maintain their quality of life? How are they getting their needs met? Um you know food, shelter, all clothing, everything. So assessing the environment is really figuring out how does this environment work for your client? It might be surprising, right? That a client can uh thrive or maybe not be thriving but survive and um be able to live ongoing in, a, in an environment that is, um, that might bring up a lot of anxiety for us as providers, but there's reasons, right? And when we understand those, it uh, helps us to understand our clients better.
1: And so now the lens we're kind of going to end on is really talking about uh, the therapeutic relationship you're building. So this is Useful for even in the outreach and engagement process, but it's also just an ongoing tips right we're not making promises, unless we can follow through on them, because that will break the trust down. Um, Transparency that kind of goes along with a lot of what we've talked about with open communication. And it can just continue to build that rapport, right? You can commiserate at how difficult it is to find housing together. Like you don't need to always be eternally positive. You can still be transparent about the difficulties and honest about it. And that will help your relationship grow as well. Respecting personal space and boundaries, that starts from outreach and engagement, right? We're not just walking up to someone's tent. If you're out there in that way, you're asking for permission, right? Um, You're asking if you can introduce yourself to them, you're asking if you can sit near them right like these are people that have often been subject to physical and sexual violence, or not just trying to come up into their space unannounced, if you're meeting with them indoors it's also really good to offer them choices of a seat because they may want a view of the door at all times to feel safe and to feel like they can stay here and complete this paperwork with you. And this is all comes from our trauma-informed care training that David Hanick and Elizabeth Mackey did. But this one is just my own. This is my hill to stand on, or die as they say, of language matters uh, because... When I started, and I'm pretty sure it's the same way, you get this giant behavioral health assessment and no tips about how to approach it. And if you just ask those questions off the bat, it's not great, right? If you're like, do you have a history of auditory hallucinations? No, (laughs) don't do it. (laughs) Say you can start with, do you hear voices, right? But even you can go, do you ever hear a voice in your head that kind of is like your subconscious but different it might have a different name or like someone that you talk to in your head like how's that you know and instead of saying do you have paranoia do you ever feel like someone is following you and just really trying to avoid clinical jargon and when you do ask those sensitive questions preface it as doing so and I would always blame I was in San Diego County. I would blame the county of San Diego. <laughs> I would say, I don't know why the county of San Diego has to have me ask you about your history of trauma every single time you're in our crisis house, but I apologize. And you can tell me as little or as much as you feel comfortable telling me, right? We're not trying to just get all this information, expecting that right off the bat. And knowing their history, right? You can confirm the history. You don't have to ask all these questions over and over again. Read their previous assessments. You become a speed reader. If you have someone that's been in the system a while, you really want to go back because each one, as we know, is done to a different level. Some are better than others. Some have better notes than others. So that's really important as well. And even try to avoid clinical jargon on paperwork they give, you give them, right? It's different if they request a copy of their behavioral health assessment from your nonprofit, right? That's out of your control. But if your client is struggling with delusions, and that has to be as part of their treatment plan in some way, let's say, title it Alternative Beliefs. Remember that you have a view of reality that works for you, and they have a view of reality that has been working for them. So it's really important that the language you use is the least clinical, because that is just going to remind them of a system that they were forced into at one point in their lives label emotions over scaling them. I always knew someone had been in the system too long when they're like, I'm a six today. I'm like, no, 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 no. Here's a feelings wheel. Tell me a feeling. Tell me an emotion. Don't scale it for me. Like, I don't care what paperwork you have, even if it demands a Likert scale, add an emotion to it. (laughs) Like we want our clients to be mindful of their emotions and putting a number on it is not the most mindful way to get that from them, right? There's a better way to engage with them. And when we're doing this behavioral health assessment, when we're doing all this paperwork we have to do with them, they may not want to share anything. And that's where getting to know their hobbies, right? What's the focus of their thoughts? What do they want to tell you about? That can often tell you a lot about how their mental health is currently if all they want to tell you about is that the CIA put a chip in their brain and they need to get it out that's going to tell you a lot, and they need to get that off their chest that's your starting point. It doesn't have to be step by step based on that assessment, it can be in a more creative way it may take longer. But ideally, you have 30 days to do a BHA. In a crisis house, you have one. <laughs> so you know, hopefully you have more time to complete this so that you're doing it in a way that they're comfortable with, that they feel seen and heard in.
0: And then I will hand it over to Chelsea. Awesome. Thanks, Jean. So, to continue on the theme building the therapeutic relationship, some of you may notice or may recognize these words we have up on the chart. These are part of motivational interviewing um, and are the approaches you use when you are using reflective listening, which is kind of like to me, when I think of am I the first. The first start, the first step, right? Um, and so if you have any training in motivational interviewing, you'll recognize these. So we have it's the um, acronym is ORS, like you're peddling, right? Um, o is for open-ended questions. So we want to ask questions that generate um, more information. So if I ask Jean, have you taken your meds? it's a yes or no. I mean, you might want to know that information, but um, say she says no, that doesn't really give you all the information you want. Um, Maybe how's it going with your meds could be a different way of getting the same information with a greater chance of getting more rich information. And like Jean was talking about, we want to get um, as much information from our clients, um, from their view as possible. And that um, one way to get it is through open-ended questions. Um, and then another really important element that we all, you know, um, I hope strive to do a lot is affirming folks, um, reflecting back their strengths, you know, showing them that you see their effort, um, their power, their voice, um, Just recognizing those moments when um, a client is doing something well, um, or maybe is doing something at all, you know, like, oh, I see that you um, got out of bed today, right? It might be the tiniest bit of progress, but those are the building blocks of recovery, right? Recovery is little by little by little. Um, And so affirming those really helps. It's, you know, it's positive reinforcement. We all love it. It helps us grow. The R is for reflect. So reflecting back, this ensures that you're showing folks that you hear them. So you might do simple reflections, really paraphrasing what someone just said to you. Um, You know, you, you are really interested in seeing your psychiatrist. I mean, I don't, I haven't had a client say that, but if they told me, I don't want to go to my psychiatrist and I say, you don't want to go to your psychiatrist. It sounds kind of silly if I'm saying it right here, but if you say that to your client, they're like, you are hearing me and you're not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing or anything. You're just acknowledging that someone, what someone is saying is valuable and that you are, um, you're a person who can listen." And then summarizing, um, that's really important and helpful for checking your understanding of what has gone on in the conversation. So if you're talking with your client, um, and they go through a bunch of different things that have been going on with them, you might want to break, take some breaks throughout the conversation to summarize what you've heard, which can help clients who are disorganized, uh, organize their thoughts more so they might throw a bunch of things at you and you put them in an order and present it back to them. It helps them um, add some organization maybe to their thoughts. and then it also helps you check to make sure you got everything and that you understood everything. Um, and when we summarize, we also want to finish with we don't want to summarize as though we know we're, we know we got it all because we have to trust that our clients are the ones who know, right? So when we summarize, we're telling them everything that we've heard, plus what else? Did I get that right? You know, you wanna check in with clients because their understanding is, um, your understanding of the client is just the most important um, in order for you to be engaged. In addition to motivational interviewing, another thing that's really helpful for building the therapeutic relationship is shared decision-making. This means that you and your client are figuring out decisions together and you're advocating for your client with other providers so that they are sharing the decision-making with your client, right? We want to focus on our client's goals We also wanna acknowledge what our own goals might be for the client so that we can distinguish between the two because we need to be uh, client-centered. That's the way we can get things done for clients and it recognizes our client's autonomy. Um, And so kind of, you know, maybe keeping your own goals in your back pocket and focusing on their goals is essential um, and helping them feel informed about the decisions they're making about their treatment uh, with you, with their other providers. Um, and then I just put this here because it helps. It's like a shortcut for me to think about when we're doing like treatment planning and we're talking about objectives and interventions. It's a it's a shared workload with you and your client. Um, the object- objectives are what your, the steps your clients are going to make to achieve their goals and the interventions are what you're going to do to help them do that, right? So, That was a little bit uh, rushed, but hopefully that all made sense. This is a quote from Anthony Ruffin. It just says,
1: believe in them or they won't believe in you. And it's just a good grounding reminder. Um, Anthony has like dedicated his life to home teams and being in the field and advocating. And it's just, it's very impressive. Um, It's all impressive that you are in the field on the day-to-day. We really appreciate the work you do.
0: Thank you so much for your participation. We really appreciate it.